0: Eric Little, a man of whom the world was not worthy, known to many as a physical runner with most people aware of his life from the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Little was born in 1902 in North China as a missionary kid. He attended school in England where he got introduced to track and demonstrated his ability to run at age 21 in a regional meeting. Scotland, England and Ireland, where he won the 400 meter race despite being knocked down at the beginning of it. So clearly a man with incredible speed, which got him chosen for the 1924 Olympics. Now the part most people know about Eric little is that he was a devout Christian who refused to run on Sundays. So at the Olympics he was scheduled to run in the 100 meter sprint where he was the clear favorite and would have easily won, but the final heat was on Sunday. So they moved him to the 400 meter against an American who ran a world record time of 47.8 seconds that morning. Nonetheless, Eric Little ran the 400 meter in 47.6 seconds that afternoon, not only beating the American and winning the gold medal, but breaking the world record, which caused the crowd to go absolutely crazy when it was announced. Now, helpful to know that even at the 1924 Olympics, Eric Little could have won several gold medals, probably should have won three gold medals at least, but he only won one because of competing on Sunday. Olympic Committee and all the people of Scotland were pressuring him to continue his career with a plan to compete in the 1928 Olympics. But instead, what did Eric Little do? He walked away. Why did he walk away? Because he was running a totally different, more important race altogether. And the truth is, the Olympics were a distraction to that race, which was back in China. So he moved back to China, got married and ministered faithfully in China right up until World War II, where in March 1943, he was confined to a Chinese military prison camp. Now grab a hold of this picture. Because there were 300 captives in that camp from all walks of life. And Eric was alone. Wife and kids were back in Canada. In fact, he never got the chance to meet his third daughter. But he faithfully ministered there. So he loved those around him. Faithfully serving, joyfully volunteering, and gave everything he had, time, effort, affection, and most importantly, the gospel to those around him. So despite the persecution, the trials, and the tribulations, Eric Little ran the race that was set before him. And he ran it with endurance, faithfully, the news of Jesus right up until he died February 21st, 1945, at the age of 43, six months before the war ended. Here's the question How did he do it? I mean, how do you walk away from being a national celebrity? choose to instead minister in such a difficult place as China and endure such persecution, trials and tribulations with such joy and energy, clarity and courage, perspective and perseverance. How do you do that? One answer. He looked to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of his faith, And he considered the joy of one day seeing his Savior face to face in future glory as greater wealth than any Olympic gold medal. That's how he did it. And that's how you and I can do it. So if you would go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. It's on page 1008 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also encourage you to have my outline right there in the Bible with you. Three points this morning: command to run, strategy to run, and application to run. If you would follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay also uh, let us May not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, notice how chapter twelve starts with the word therefore. And then comes before it, so there's clearly context to these words. But I want you to think about the context in two different ways, starting with a the condition of the church, because the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling with the persecution that is coming to them. So they're being tempted to abandon their salvation in Christ and turn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now why would they do that? Why would they turn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, because if they do that, it'll keep them from being persecuted. Christians were being persecuted, not Jewish people. So they're tempted to turn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system so that they can avoid being persecuted. So the author is pleading with them to hold fast to their confession in Jesus without wavering because they're seriously struggling at this point in time. To use the imagery of a runner, their spiritual legs are tired, their lungs are winded, and they're growing weak in the knees. So honestly, at this point in time, it would be easier for them to just wander into the crowd than to run with endurance the race that God set before them, which means spiritually speaking, they started to drift away, lacking focus, energy, clarity, and conviction, which is why we have all of the warning passages in Hebrews. For example, Hebrews 2.1. The author says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we possibly escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or how about Hebrews 3.12? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's still called today. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So take care, brothers. Because some are obviously not taking care. So the church is drifting. Neglecting their salvation and growing careless. So not being diligent, not exhorting one another, not fixing their hope completely on the Lord Jesus. Which means they're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin the worries of the world, and the fearful expectation of persecution. That's the context of this entire book. And, condition of the and into that context, the author says, Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What I want you to understand is the command to run doesn't come out of blue. It doesn't come out of nowhere. But instead, it's the main point of the entire book of Hebrews. That believers in Christ are commanded to persevere, to endure, to not drift away, to not neglect their salvation, to not be sluggish or take for granted their eternal security, but instead to fight the good fight of faith on the basis of Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross for their salvation so the main is to run run with endurance that's the command everything else supports it or explains it provides strategy for it or motivation to do it and the immediate context is obviously Hebrews 11 right the hall of faith be this great cloud of witnesses because the author says since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who are these witnesses and what does it mean that they're witnessing well it's all the saints who lived and died so valiantly including Abel Enoch and Noah Moses, and all the men and women of whom the world was not worthy. So those who are living proof of a faith that looks forward, just like Eric Little. But what does it mean that they're witnessing? Because witness can either mean the act of seeing or observing something, or the act of testifying or declaring something. So which is it? Well, I take this cloud of witnesses to be those who are declaring by their example what it looks like to live by faith and die by faith looking forward to the joy of being with Jesus. The best way to highlight that is if you look at Hebrews 11.4. If you look at Hebrews 11.4, the author highlights Abel and he says, who through faith, Abel who through faith, though he is dead, still speaks. But that's true of all these heroes of the faith. So this entire cloud of witnesses, because they're all dead. And yet they're all still speaking. They're still witnessing. They're still testifying through the scriptures regarding what it looks like to live by faith and to die by faith. Looking forward to Jesus. They made it. They ran the race. They finished they fought the good fight. They, they finished the race. They kept the faith. And now they're waiting for us. So we can also receive the great crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to each and every one of us when he returns. So they're cheering us on. And they're declaring through their examples, you can do this. You can make it. You can finish. I know this is difficult. All you need to do is keep Running. So it's not about the speed. But it's about persevering in the faith. So don't quit. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. But we're not just given the command to run, are we? With this glorious audience, this great cloud of witnesses. We're also given, number two, the strategy to run. Because verse 1 says, "Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith." So the first strategy is to lay things aside, namely every weight and every sin, And the second strategy is to look to Jesus, both his person and his example. So let's start with A by laying aside. Which makes total sense, doesn't it? Because the main command is to run. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Well, what's the best way to run? Well, it's to lay things aside. Right? It's to cast off anything and everything that's not useful or necessary to running. So spiritually speaking, it's the weight that hinders us or the sin that entangles us. And I want to start with number one, laying aside every sin that entangles us. Because you can't possibly run the race of faith if all you're ever doing is hang on to the same old sins and allowing them to constantly trip you up. Yet that's... Exactly what he's talking about, isn't it? Because he says laying aside every sin which clings so closely. So he's talking about the sins we struggle with the most. He's talking about our besetting sins. He's talking about the sins that we have the hardest time casting off. The sins that distract us the most, entangle us the most and the sins that threaten to consume us and destroy us. You know, the picture that immediately comes to my mind is of a Venus flytrap. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Because the Venus flytrap is this incredible plant that essentially looks like a big green clam, right? If you can picture this in your mind, a big green clam with antenna and spikes coming out the ends of its leaves. But did you know that the Venus flytrap produces this incredibly delicious nectar that the flies just can't seem to resist? So they land on the pads of this open green clam, and they gorge themselves on the nectar until all of a sudden, the trap collapses, closes in on them, and consumes them. You know, honestly, if you go home and watch the video, it's terrifying. To watch, You know, they zoom in on this whole thing and you're like, don't do it, don't do it. Boom. He's done. But that's what comes to my mind. Because we're talking about the sinful nectar that tempts us the most. That draws us in. And clings so closely. So the sins that distract, entangle and threaten to destroy us. That's what the author is talking about, isn't it? Sin that prevents us from running the race of faith with endurance, which obviously causes us to not finish the course. I mean, that kind of sin at least has to be in view here. The author just said, Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment. So number one strategy for running with endurance, we must lay aside every sin which clings so closely that threatens to prevent us from finishing the race altogether. So let me just ask you, What sin is that for you? Do you have a name for it in your life? Is it materialism or judgmentalism? Is it envy or pride or lust? Is it anger? Fear of man? Or sexual immorality? What sin is it for you? And have you given it a name? Is it laziness? Or drunkenness? Or is it the worries of the world? The deceitfulness of riches? Or the desire for other Things. Let me encourage you to identify that sin in your life. Because it's not the same for all of us. But you need to identify it so that you can fight the good fight of faith against it. But it's not just sin, is it? It's also laying aside every weight that hinders you. I want you to picture in your mind's eye someone who is running a marathon. So running 26 miles. Not on 26 separate days. One mile a day. It's not what I'm talking about, right? 26 miles all at one time. I want you to picture a person who's running a marathon in your mind's eye. Can you picture that person? Now in your mind's eye, Notice how they're wearing a trench coat and high heels or a wool sweater. What would you immediately say to someone who is doing that? Wouldn't you immediately tell them to take it off and to put on the lightest shorts and t-shirt that they can possibly find with the best shoes that money can buy especially if you're running a marathon but let me push this down a little bit further because you could easily argue that none of those things are wrong I mean it's not wrong to run in a trench coat or in high heels or in a sweater is it but you'd all agree wouldn't you that's not smart Don't do that. You're being foolish. But do you understand? That is what we so often argue. Meaning we ask the question, what's wrong with this or that? And if there's nothing wrong or sinful with this or that, then what's the big deal? But what I'm trying to say is that you're asking the wrong question. So according to Hebrews 12.1, the question is not, what's wrong with this or that? But the question is, does it help me run? Because the author is saying, don't just lay aside every sin, but lay aside anything and everything that hinders you from running. So anything that prevents you from delighting yourself in the Lord Jesus. So he's saying the best strategy is to get rigorous with your life. Get rid of the trench coat. Cast off the heels and the sweater. They weigh you down. You don't need any of that. Not to get to Jesus. Not to make it home to glory. Those things are unhelpful and unnecessary. So let me just ask. What are those things for you? How about social media? Social media is not wrong. But is it helpful for you to run? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. How about Netflix? Amazon Prime? And binge-watching? Your favorite show. Is binge watching helpful with regard to running with endurance? How about unhelpful music? How about ungodly friends? How about inappropriate movies? How about comfort and ease? Alcohol. Video games and maximizing your me time. I mean, you just agreed it's not smart to run a marathon in a trench coat, heels, or a sweater. We all agreed. Cast it off. Well, then why in the world would we hesitate, even for a second, to cast off anything and everything that hinders us from running the race of faith? To get to see Jesus. Oh, I appeal to you to be tenacious about what stays and what goes in your life. And to work hard to shift your orientation from being a minimalist to being a maximalist. So it's not just the obvious sins that need to be gone. It needs to be anything and everything that hinders you from running. That's strategy number one. To run with endurance the race that is set before us. Laying aside every sin and every weight. But the author gives us another strategy altogether, doesn't he? I would suggest a deeper and more profound strategy. So when you're facing the steepest hills... It's cold and it's raining and you're running into the wind, your legs are burning, your heart is pounding, and everything in you wants to just quit and walk home. Strategy number two is B, looking to Jesus. The author says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder And the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So two reasons why we should look to Jesus. Number one, because of his person. Number two, because of his example. Now when I say his person, I'm talking about the description that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Which those two obviously go together. But it's so helpful to see them in a couple of other passages in the book of Hebrews. For example, Hebrews two ten, the author says, "For it was fitting that he, Jesus, who for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect." How is he made perfect? Through suffering. So Jesus is the founder of our salvation or the author or the source of our salvation, which means he did everything necessary to pay for our sins and reconcile us to God, which is what the author goes on to say, Hebrews two seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. Why did he do that? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. So Jesus is the founder of our faith, meaning there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So the only way to be forgiven of your sin, the only way to have the hope of eternal life, is to look to Jesus. His sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the grave. So let me appeal to you If you have not yet looked to Jesus in faith, then I appeal to you to do that this morning. Because there is salvation in no one else. There's no other way to be forgiven of your sin. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. There's no other way to have the hope of eternal life. Unless you look to Jesus. So I appeal to you. If you've not yet done so, Look to Jesus this morning. Repent, believe, and be saved in his finished work on the cross. But Jesus is not just the author of our faith, is he? He's also the perfecter of our faith. Which means he's the beginning and the end. So he promises that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus. So he will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for you and promises to save you to the uttermost. So Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning of the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, which all gets played out in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Which is number two. His example, the author says, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the greatest example of persevering faith that has ever been given. I mean, the great crowd of witnesses is wonderful. They're great. But it's nothing compared to Jesus. Let me put this in running language for you. Because Jesus ran the race, didn't he? Just like he's calling us to run the race. Jesus' race was 33 years long. But the author doesn't want us to focus on the first 32 years. It wants us to focus specifically on the last week of Jesus' life. That's why he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So his race ended with a horrific gauntlet of opposition and suffering and the immeasurable shame of the crucifixion. Not necessarily the physical pain, but being cut off from his father. So bearing the awful weight of sin and enduring the wrath of God as a result. And surely you agree Jesus' race was a marathon of love. With the last leg. So the last quarter mile, including betrayal and desertion. A crown of thorns on his head, nails in his hands and his feet. And a spear thrust into his side. Just to confirm that he was dead. No doubt the greatest act of love ever performed in the history of the world. Because the race set before Jesus was the race to die for the sins of all those who would believe in him. So here's the question. How did Jesus do it? Meaning, how did he run with such endurance, such perseverance? How did Jesus make it to the end? Declaring it is finished. Well, verse 2 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So there was a future joy that enabled him and empowered him to persevere through the muck and the mire, the sorrow and the shame, which he despised. But that future joy was worth it which surely included his exaltation to God's right hand, but also the salvation he accomplished through his finished work on the cross for every man, woman, and child whom the Father had given to the Son. So the joy of being promised this inheritance, people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people group. But whatever the specifics, it's crystal clear that for that joy set before him, Jesus endured the pain, the agony, and the shame of the cross. And as a result, he is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he rules and he reigns for all eternity. So here's the question that I want to ask. If this future joy is so powerful that it enables such perseverance to such an extent that we can endure the worst trials and tribulations in our present life, are there examples of it? in the scripture. Well, of course there are. I mean, that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. But what's even better is the people to whom this letter was written have already experienced it. In fact, if you would just flip back to Hebrews 10.32. Hebrews 10.32. The author says there, Hebrews 10.32... But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, speaking to this group of believers, this church, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Why endure such suffering? The author says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So for the joy set before them in the future, they endured this present persecution. These are the exact same people to whom this letter is written. So they know what it looks like to run with endurance the race that is set before them. Identifying with Jesus and with Jesus' people rather than avoiding persecution. They have done it already. Look at this list. Being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions means they were victims of verbal abuse in the public square. And they weren't afraid to identify themselves with fellow Christians. Instead, they had compassion on those who were in jail. Meaning they brought them food and water and whatever was needed. So rather than going underground to save their own skin, they visited those who were in need at great risk to themselves. Because you weren't just identifying yourself with the people in the prison. By doing so, you were identifying with Christ himself. And then verse 34. This is so helpful for us. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Now, what's remarkable is not that they lost their property because they identified themselves with Jesus, but that they responded to persecution with joy. Here's the question. How did they do it? How did they run with endurance even in the midst of this terrible persecution? Verse 34 tells us. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew. You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now is he talking about another home in the hills? Or another car or clothes or stuff that is stashed in the backyard someplace? No, he's talking about the hope of future glory. So because of the joy set before them, they endured the loss of their reputation, the imprisonment of their friends, and even the plundering of their property. How did they do that? Because they knew. They knew that one day they would be with Jesus. That's the greater joy set before us. It's the promise that Christ will return, that he will make all things right, and that he's preparing a place for us in that better possession, that lasting city, our eternal heavenly home. Which means that if this world is your treasure, rather than the immeasurable riches of being with Christ, then you'll never make it through the persecution. But if you're looking to Jesus and you're considering the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than all the riches of this earth, then you'll persevere. Then you'll make it home. You'll run the race with endurance, not growing weary or faint-hearted, which is the author's greatest concern. Number three, the application to run. Look again at verse three. The author says, Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility against himself. Why? Why should we consider Jesus? So that you might not grow weary or faint hearted. Now, I want you to think about how specific that is to the original audience. Because that's exactly what's happening to them right now. Right there at the end of their race with persecution and death right around the corner. If you will, they're facing the steepest hill. It's never been colder. It's never been more rainy. And they're running into the wind. Their their legs are burning. Their heart is pounding. And everything in them just wants to quit and give up. They're weary. And they're faint-hearted. And what's the solution? Super simple. Consider Jesus. Because Jesus endured such hostility against himself. So he can relate to whatever it is that you're going through. Doesn't that remind you of Hebrews 4.15? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So consider, A, the reality of Christ's experience. He's been there. He's done that. So follow his example. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. By being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? What did Jesus do? He kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. So absolutely, consider the reality of Christ's experience that he endured hostility right up until he was crucified on the cross. He understands persecution and he can absolutely relate to what you're going through. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? Because he endured that hostility, the mocking and the affliction, the betrayal and the desertion, the crown of thorns on his head, the nails in his hands and his feet. He endured all of that for your salvation. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness. Do you understand the greatest way we can ever consider Jesus is by faith. Looking to Him, trusting Him, delighting in the fact that His sacrifice was sufficient not only to save us, but to empower us, to persevere, to endure, firm to the end. That's the greatest way we can ever consider Jesus, remembering he offered himself up once for all as a single sacrifice for our sin, thus securing our eternal redemption. So by faith, we consider all that Jesus accomplished, which enables us by his example and empowers us by his spirit to press on putting one foot in front of the other, not growing weary or faint-hearted, but entrusting ourselves to the one who promises to guard us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So then what should we do? Meaning, what does it look like for us this morning to consider Christ? So, we might not grow weary or faint hearted, but run with endurance the race that is set before each one of us. Well, here's a practical application for you to consider. For starters, we're right in the middle of summer. I mean, this is already July 23rd. So, what if you stepped back and you made a plan for yourself to run with endurance? which starts by setting aside time. Maybe you make the decision that you're going to set aside the month of August just so that you can read through one of the Gospels, just so that you can get to know Jesus even better and be more enamored with his person and his work. Your plan to run with endurance, delighting yourself in Jesus, his teaching and his miracles, his character and his way of interacting with people. And being overwhelmed by the amount of time that each gospel focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. So, glorying in his humiliation that he truly did endure from sinners such hostility against himself for your salvation. And you spend all of August delighting in that reality. That he died for me. You hear what I'm saying? You're not focusing on run. How do I run better? How do I run better? How do I? No, you just delight yourself in Jesus. All of August, I just want to glory in the fact that He died for me. Be overwhelmed by all that He endured, so that I can be reconciled to God for all eternity. Don't you think? That planned, proactive, dedicated time considering Jesus would serve you well to not grow weary or faint-hearted in your race of faith. Might be the best spiritual strengthening exercise you've ever done for your faith. Second thing I would suggest is you start planning. On how you can better dedicate yourself to running the race that God has uniquely set before you. Specifically writing down any sins that entangle you or seemingly innocent weights that hinder you. So anything that's not explicitly condemned in the Bible but is clearly holding you back in your race of faith. Or your race of love or your race of courage and freedom or your race in holiness and sacrifice and service to your king the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage you to be tenacious when you do this. Because if it hinders you from running or limits your affection for the Lord Jesus or your longing for His return, then it's got to go. Don't just identify the sins and weights in your life. That's a good first step. But then make the plan to chuck them. Get rid of them. Cast them off. So often I talk to people and in counseling, they're able to identify the sin in their life. And they're able to put a finger on the weights that hinder them. But then they don't cast them off. Oh, you need a plan to identify them. But you need a plan to get rid of them. Why would you run in a trench coat and high heels and a wool sweater? You would never do that. Well, then let's get rigorous about the things in our life that have to be gone. Because they're not helping you from running. So set aside August. August, I'm going to create a list. And it's a list that I'm going to keep. It's not on a, a scrap piece of paper or the back of an envelope that's going to get thrown away. No, it's on my iPad because I'm going to keep this list. List of sins that have to go. I would encourage you to give them biblical names, not frustration, anger, sexual immorality. List them. Here's the list of sins. Here's the list of weights. Next column. What's my plan to get rid of them? Cast them off. Be diligent to get rid of them so that I can run with endurance the race that is set before me. You know, that's why I started with Eric Little this morning. Eric Little joyfully gave up Olympic gold medals. The certainty of Olympic gold medals for the Lord Jesus which means he was ruthless when he did this exercise. And he determined that the fleeting joy of Olympic glory, including glitz and glamour, being a national celebrity, rest and relaxation, ease and comfort, money and status, nothing wrong with any of those things. But they were a hindrance to him running the race that God had called him to do. So he cast them off in order to run with endurance the race that God had set before him including ministering the gospel to the lost in china enduring hardship persecution trials and tribulations with such joy and energy clarity and courage perspective and perseverance if you asked eric little how did he do it he'd give you one answer he looked to jesus the author and the perfecter of his faith. And he considered the joy of one day seeing his Savior face to face as greater wealth than any Olympic gold medal. He weighed, he measured, and he decided with joy and deep conviction, Jesus is better. No brainer. I pray that we would do the same. That we would lay aside every weight and every sin and that we might look to Jesus and that we would long for his return, the new heavens and the new earth where there will be fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore in his presence. May that future glory invade this present reality and cause us to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, what a helpful passage. We want to be those who run with endurance. We want to be those who make it to the finish line. So, Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning who have not yet looked to the Lord Jesus by faith, Lord, I pray that you would be working in their mind and in their heart, that they would recognize that all the other things that they're running hard after will never deliver in the end. Salvation is only available in the Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his willingness to lay down his life so that we can have life. Lord, I pray for any of those who have not yet looked to the Lord Jesus in faith that they would do so. Let today be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, for the believers who are here this morning, I pray that you're doing a good work in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, we quickly agree, yes, we must lay aside every sin and yet there's besetting sins. Lord, we're able to identify things that are not helpful, yet we hesitate to cast them off. Lord, I pray that you would be doing a good work, the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to impact the people of God, that we would recognize those things do not help us run. And we want to run with endurance. We want to look back at the cross and glory in our salvation, and we want to look forward to Christ's return when we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, between now and then, we want to run with endurance. So Lord, give us wisdom to identify those things in our lives, to cast them off, and to always be delighting ourselves in the Lord Jesus. We're so grateful for his finished work on the cross that we can be forgiven of our sin and empowered by your spirit to run the race that you've called us to run. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.